Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. (laughs) All right. I have these teeth whitening strips in my mouth. I didn't realize that they were going to make me talk a little bit funny. I should not have put them in right before doing the show. So we're we're going a little bit lispy with, <laughs> with this edition. And you know, when I think of lisps, I think of how many hours you've had to waste <laughs> going to the post office for your business. You know, driving there, parking, waiting for the next available clerk. There's nothing I can do to help you get those hours back, my friends. But I can save you time moving forward with Stamps.com. Stamps.com brings you all the services of the U.S. Postal Service (laughs) service right to your desk 24-7. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Stamps.com will send you a digital scale and it instantly calculates exact postage for any letter or package. Any class of mail, there's no guesswork. Uh, You'll never have to waste time going to the post office again. I use Stamps.com for risk in the story studio and I love it. Uh, Right now, you can use our promo code, R-I-S-K, for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. I think I'm getting used to these things. Now here's the show.
kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Krang. Behind me now, we're calling this week's episode Yikes, because in the past, on Halloween, round about this time of year, we've had Ack and Ick and Eek. So now it's time for Yikes. In just a bit, we are going to hear from the remarkable Mr. Scott Whitehair, a good friend of the show and the host of This Much Is True Chicago. In fact, the recording that we have of Scott was recorded at This Much Is True in Chicago. But before that, we're going to hear from the lovely Mr. Jackson McKeon, who is now a dear friend of mine, was once a mere story studio student. But some of those students just keep coming back. They stay in touch with one another. They go to risk and all the other story shows around town and become a part of the scene. Jackson, as you will soon hear, is a wonderful storyteller. He's also a fashion designer, uh, the founder of Boys Wear, which you can find on Twitter at Boys Wear NYC. And here he is now the story we call A Light in the Dark. For as long as I can remember, I've always been an anxious, nervous wreck. I play with the buttons on the front of my shirt. My muscles are always sore with tension. I'm sweaty. Sometimes I'm doing all of these things. I'll clench my jaw. I'll I'll just be as tight as I possibly can. And when somebody tells me to relax, I don't understand what that means because I, I, I just, I don't know how. By the time I was seven, I had lost both of my parents. So I lived with my aunt and uncle, and I grew up in a very turbulent household. There was a lot of tension, and it sort of embedded itself into me at a very young age. And it's something that's always been with me. I've spent most of my adult life trying to come to terms with my feelings of loneliness and abandonment and and trying to build a family for myself wherever I go. About two years ago, I was in school. I was in my last semester of school. Everything was piling up. I had work piling upon work. I was working on projects. I was trying to get my finals done. And on top of all of this, I was searching for a job, which made it even that much more stressful for me. And since I'm somebody that doesn't handle stress well, I wasn't doing well. It was about the end of March, turning into spring. One night I said, fuck it. I'm just going to go to bed. I'm going to go to bed at a decent hour. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to feel great. So I went to bed around 11 p.m. And as soon as my head hit the pillow, I fell right to sleep. I slept for a few hours solid. And then I remember waking up and I didn't know what time it was or how long I had been asleep. But I woke up and my room was freezing cold. It was as if I were in a giant freezer, which was very unusual for this time of year. Even though it was just the beginning of spring, it was already warm out. I remembered before going to bed, having closed the windows, and I wanted to open my eyes and see if the window had somehow gotten open, but I couldn't. I couldn't move. I realized that my arms were crossed across my chest, just as tight as I could hold them. I was like 
pushing myself down into the bed. I couldn't move my arms and I couldn't open my eyes. And I just felt this like weight on top of me and I was freezing. I thought, well, this is odd. I could be having a stroke or something is going on, something strange. And after a few seconds of just being so tight and feeling this weight on me, I heard a voice in my ear say, let your arms down to the side. I tried to release my arms. I couldn't. And I was getting freaked out. And then I heard the voice again say, put your arms down in a very calm tone. And all of a sudden I felt my whole body release. I was able to put my arms to my side and I opened my eyes and I looked around the room. The window was closed, the cold air was gone, and there wasn't anyone in the room with me. And I was freaked, freaked out. I couldn't tell if I had imagined this or if someone was in the room playing a prank on me, but everything was gone and everything was fine. And even though I was terrified, I looked at the clock and it was around 3 a.m., And I thought, well, nothing to do but to go back to sleep. So I went back to sleep. The next morning I woke up and I felt a very strange feeling, something I really couldn't remember feeling before. And it was a feeling of what I assumed to be relaxation. I felt good. I felt like I had finally slept a solid night. That day I had a session with my new psychoanalyst. And I thought, I'm going to take this in and just see what he thinks about it. He's a great guy, but he's small, very dark, and seems very broody. And he sits in his chair and he talks to me about Freud. I was thinking, oh my gosh, you know, he's just going to eat this up. So I was lying on the couch and I began to tell him what had happened. And the first thing I asked him, I said, do you believe in ghosts? And he asked me, you know, why was I asking him that? And I explained what had happened the night before. His reply was, no, I don't believe in ghosts. He said, I believe that you were having a very vivid dream and that your unconscious was trying to tell you something. I wanted to believe him, but I couldn't because I did believe in ghosts. And no matter what logic he was trying to tell me, I believe that I was visited by a spirit. And here's why. The previous year, I had been visiting family in Montana, and after having a few drinks with my Aunt Janet, she told me that my Aunt Dottie, who was the aunt that raised me, had visited a psychic several years before taking my sister and I in. The psychic had told her that I was going to be gay and that I would come out, and my aunt was furious that she was going to be raising a gay kid. So growing up, she always pushed me to be more masculine and tried to get me to be less effeminate. And she wanted me to join the military because she thought it would straighten me out. It turns out the psychic was right. And at age 16, my aunt found some gay porn on the home computer. I was the only culprit and I was forced out of the closet. This caused my aunt to disown me and leave me with my uncle and she moved away. At that time, we didn't end up speaking for the next two years because I knew she didn't want to have me in her life and to have raised a gay child. After learning of my Aunt Dottie's trip to the psychic, I had got the idea in my head that I wanted to go visit a medium to find out what my mom really thought of me. 
So as soon as I got back to New York, I looked online and I found a list of what seemed to be a legit psychic medium. The next thing I knew, I was in her office for an appointment and the psychic was a girl my age. She was shorter than me, busty, short hair, and she looked like an elf. She looked like she had just stepped out of a Lord of the Rings movie. And I thought, all right, like this little girl is going to be a psychic medium and talk to my dead parents. Yeah, right. So she took me into a smaller room in the back of her office and there was bookshelves with mystical things. I was like, you've got to be shitting me. And, you know, she told me that I had to pay her up front and it was a lot of money. It was more money than I should have been spending, more money than I had. But I gave it to her anyway because this was something that I had to find out for myself. She sat me down in a chair across from me. She sat facing me with a table in the center. On the table, she had a little lamp and some crystals. And she asked me to write down 10 questions of things I wanted to ask her or questions about somebody in a spirit that I would want to know. And so I wrote down my questions and we went through them one by one and they were, you know, stock questions. And she answered all of these things and her answers were very general and broad. And yes, you're doing the right thing. If you feel like you're not, then you're not on the right path. These are boring questions with boring answers, and I'm not really getting what I expected to get out of these. Towards the end of my list, I had a question about my parents, and the question was, what do my dead parents, my mother and father, think of me? And she said, well, let me ask them. And I thought, all right, lady, go ahead. She sat there quiet for a moment, and she said, I have both of your parents here with me, and they'd both like to speak to you. I'm still very skeptical, and I said, all right. She said, your dad is here, and he wants you to know that he loves you, and he's proud of you. He doesn't understand you living in New York or your lifestyle there, but he wants you to know that he supports you no matter what your decisions are. And he said, every time you have a Miller High life, you think of me. And I was like, all right. So, I mean, it was funny because my dad did drink Miller High Life. That was his beer of choice. But I thought, you know, she must just be reading into this. This is a good guess. I thought, well, what about my mother? And she said, your mother is here and she has even more to say to you. Your mother wants you to know that she is here. She supports you. She loves you. And she thinks you're great. She wants you to know that no matter what, she's always there looking out for you. And I thought... That is very stock. This is very generic. I said, can you prove to me that it's my mother? She sat quiet for a moment. She said, your mother wants you to remember a time when you were around the ages of three and four. You would sit on her lap at the desk in front of an old Mac computer, and she would play a very specific computer game, and you would watch her play. And I was floored. This was one of the only memories I had left of my mother. She was, she was very young when she died, and I was only four when she passed, so I didn't remember a lot about her. But I remembered this. I remembered sitting on her lap and watching her play this game and feeling very safe. And I was just stunned, and I, I started crying. And I said, yes, you know, it, it is really her. And she said, your mother wants you to know that for your whole life, she's been acting as your guardian and that she loves you and that she's taking care of you for as long as she needs to and that she's not going to leave until you're able to 
take care of yourself in a way that is safe and healthy. And she said, your mother is acting as your matchmaker and she's looking for someone for you. And she thinks that she's going to find someone soon, but to not lose hope and that he's out there waiting and she's going to find him for me. And the last thing she told me was that I needed to make sure that whatever career path I chose, it was a creative field where I would work with my hands. After the session with the medium, I felt fulfilled and reinvigorated. I enrolled in design school, I started my first semester, and I'd never been happier. I was making clothes and drafting patterns and designing and drawing and sewing and tailoring and working with my hands and being creative. And I, I never felt more right than the path I had chosen and I was just going in the right direction. School went on and I would get stressed out and nervous. And then this thing happened with my last semester and the spirit and the voice in my bedroom. That next morning, I realized I felt so relaxed and at ease because I knew that that was the spirit of my mother getting to me to release the tension that was in my body and to just breathe and to know that I was getting a good night's sleep and that she was there watching out for me. I got through the rest of that semester. I graduated. During this period, I began talking to my aunt again. We made sort of amends and we have as much of a relationship as she'll allow. That's okay with me because I feel linked to her by blood and I feel it's my duty to be a part of her life. After I got a job, after I graduated, I met my boyfriend and we've been together for over a year now and I couldn't be happier with him. I think to myself, this is all illogical. If this doesn't make sense, scientifically, intellectually, I know this can't be true. I know that I have imagined these things. I've imagined my mother there and helping me. But then I look around and I think of my family and I think of the friends and family I've created here in the city with me. And I feel, I feel so much love and joy and I feel like I'm being cared for. The only thing I can think is that it's my mother and she's there. And no matter how nervous or anxious I might be, I'll always have those nerves, but I'll also always have her for as long as I need her, guiding me and pushing me in a direction of happiness and looking for inner peace. The moment I had been waiting for had come. With a nod of Mr. Sericio's head, all the other fifth graders started pulling on eye patches or putting on a football jersey, an eye black, or a witch hat. But I didn't do any of that. I just smiled and reached under my desk to get the brown paper bag I've been waiting to get into all day. I wasn't gonna paint my face or wear a werewolf mask. I had something else in mind. And so as everybody put on their half-assed costumes, I smiled and slipped out into the hall. <laughs> because this wasn't a costume. This was to be a 
transformation. <laughs> now I was gonna go to the bathroom, but I didn't want to go to the main bathroom where people be coming in and out. I went to the one that only the janitor used. <laughs> you know, the one with like leaky pipes and a flickering light bulb and never any paper products. <laughs> I went there because I thought it was fitting. Because I would go in, fifth grade dork. <laughs> But I would come out, Freddy Krueger. I, I guess some of you have heard of him. If you haven't, Freddy Krueger is a movie monster. He's the best modern movie monster. He was a bad guy who then got burnt and he, he wears a dirty old hat and he's scarred and he attacks you at night in your dreams and he has razors, a razor glove. I really, really could relate to Freddy. <laughs> no, I, I had never been burned. The, well, the most, I had put my chin on a pancake griddle once. <laughs> so that was the extent. <laughs> And I had, I had never worked my way into anybody's dreams as hard as I might have tried. <laughs> but I could relate to Freddy, because Freddy, he was, a, he was a loner. He was an outcast. He was always making weird jokes that nobody else got. <laughs> Freddy, he was a little weird looking. So I could relate to Freddy. Not only could I relate to him, I kind of looked up to him. Because as Freddy and I shared some common ground, there were some things Freddy did that I, I couldn't do. Freddy always knew the right thing to say. Freddy always had a one-liner. Like he would say, like he'd attack someone out of a TV and he'd be like, welcome to prime time, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> But I never knew the right thing to say, like, I had a hard time ordering milk in the cafeteria. I'd get too awkward and I'd mumble and I'd just end up with an orange drink. <laughs> Freddie was cool. He was an outcast, but he was cool. And the other thing was when push came to shove, Freddie had his glove of knives. He didn't get pushed around or picked on. I don't know why I'm going to tell you this. <laughs> on my wall in fifth grade you know like most kids at that time are like they've got a poster like the mild sexuality of Melissa Milano are <laughs> <laughs> like you know the Swedish bikini team it's all good can't be fun but I'm starting to like girls yeah. on my wall was a, a large framed portrait of Freddy in a tuxedo. <laughs> My aunt worked for a TV station in, in Philadelphia who was doing a Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, the TV series. So she got that when they gave it to me, I squealed. It was the, I put it up on my wall, and, and at night when I'm going to sleep, I'd glance over, and there's a monster in a tuxedo. And I would smile. I'd often think, 
You know, to myself, like, Freddie was so confident when I was in situations where I felt awkward, I'd be like, what would Freddie do? What would he say? How would he hold himself? <laughs> I don't know why I told you that. <laughs> Could have left that part of the poster out. <laughs> so there I am in the bathroom. And I'm spreading out my stuff. Now, I had taken a long time to put this costume together because in my family, like, Halloween's not a big budget thing. You get, like, a mask and then a plastic thing with the picture of that mask on it. <laughs> There's your costume. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to start early. And, and where I started was in uh, August, clothes shopping with my mom. I'm like, I've got to get Freddy's red and green sweater. So we're at Value City and we're looking. I find something. It's kind of close. It's not exactly the stripes, they're a little skinnier, but I'm like, that'll work. So I go to my mom and I'm like, I think this is a pretty sharp sweater. Don't you? <laughs> She's like, well, I guess you can you wear it around Christmas. And I had my Freddy Krueger sweater. <laughs> now we had in the Halloween box at my house um, a, an old costume fedora. I had black pants, so I was a good way there before Halloween came around. Now, when my mom and I went to buy costume stuff, uh, the, fir the, the first part of that was easy. I found a makeup kit. It was called Hollywood Effects. <laughs> and and the, the name of this particular kit was Burn Victim. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the guy in the cover was, didn't even look like a human. And I'm like, yes, that. <laughs> so I'm almost there. But without the glove, you can't be Freddy Krueger, you have to have the glove. And they had it, and it was 20 bucks. So I picked it up and I held it in the best light I could, and I walked over to my mom, and I gave her my pitch. I said, Mom, I've never really asked you for anything. <laughs> I don't feel like I eat that much. <laughs> I take up such little space. And you know, there was one time I was sick, I didn't even tell you because I didn't want to use up our medicine. <laughs> I have never needed in my life anything as much as I need this right now. And if you get it for me, it'll be my Halloween costume for the next 20 years. <laughs> and when I die, I'll pass it on to my son, who will wear it every Halloween. <laughs> this is the smartest investment in my future that you can possibly make. <laughs> she looked at it. She said, all right. Just please stop talking. <laughs> And I had my glove. <laughs> so I'm in the janitor's bathroom, and this makeup kit was intense. Like, it's not like, oh, a little makeup. Like, you had to, I had to bring Tupperware and cups and measure out, like, a cup of this, and, like, be mixing a paste here, and then you had a certain other base layer here. I had, like, all spread out. I, uh, and as it's, as it's getting there, I put on my sweater. Um, I put on a bald cap. I'm wearing a hat, but I was so committed, I'm like, I would know that my hair's showing under the hat. So I wore a bald cap. And as I'm standing there looking at the makeup and I'm getting it together, I'm picturing what's going to happen very shortly. I'm going to walk back in there. 
and, and, and obviously, people are going to scream in horror. Uh, probably somebody, one or two, will faint. <laughs> and then my teacher standing there, a look of awe on his face, a piece of Re uh, Reese's cup falling out of his mouth, would obviously just wet himself. <laughs> I couldn't wait. So I finally got the makeup to where it was setting correctly, and I started to to put it on my face and it was grainy and it smelled bad and it stung but it was looking good so far and I, I could think in my mind like this is going to be amazing I, this is going to be the best thing that I've ever done in my life <laughs> and so I'm smeared it on and I've got it and, I, and it's covering my face it's in my nostril a little bit and I, and I let it sit now I have to let it dry a little bit and as that's happening I'm thinking you know this is so good maybe they won't even know it's me <laughs> maybe you know, down the road, they'll be like, do you remember when, and I'll be like, whoa, Freddy Krueger was here? Like, yeah, whoa. Like, like we weren't in the same room together. So I'm thinking this, so I'm thinking that makeup starts to dry, and it starts to like pull my face. And it's like starting to, it's like getting really hard and solid. My, I'm practicing my Freddy voice, but this isn't going to sound very like, welcome to prime time, bitch. It's not going to be as effective. But it's looking good. I look burnt up. And I'm like, oh, that's the important part. So I'm just about ready, and I'm like, oh, there's one more step. You have to get a sponge and a little bit of black makeup, and then you put on the char. That's where the real artistry comes in. So I'm like, you can't skip that part. And I'm putting a little burn marks and a little bit of fake blood, and I'm looking in the mirror, and I'm like, this, this is better than I had ever imagined. So finally, I get the char, the hat's on, I put on my glove, I head out of the bathroom. <laughs> and as I'm walking down the hall, I'm practicing my, my, my Freddy lines like, detention's over, or I'd like to see you after class. <laughs> Keep in mind, I didn't have the writers that Freddy had. <laughs> but I was also dragging my plastic like hand down the lockers. <laughs> but they were, they were cheap rubber, so they're like, what? <laughs> But I'm, I'm feeling good. And I get to the room, and I stand outside, and I pull my hat down over, and I'm ready for this moment. And I step inside, and I, I go with what I had planned. And I go, Well, looks like the student has become the teat. Mr. Sericio is behind his desk. He looks up and shrugs. There's only one other student in the class. <laughs> it was uh, Suzanne, she was a special needs student, who the minute she saw me smiled this big beautiful smile and said, Hi, Scott! <laughs> Here's the thing about elementary school parties. They last seven minutes <laughs> at the end of the day. They save just enough time, you pull on your costume, you get a bag of snacks. If a popular kid wants their kid to be even more popular, there might be pizza uh, that they bring in, and then, um, and then that's it. So I'm standing there, and I'm like, Mr. Stricio looks up again, he goes, I uh, tried to uh, keep the other boys out of your snack bag, but I think they got in there. Aww. Oh no, don't, don't, don't feel too bad. They left me an eraser. <laughs> I had a pencil eraser. It was orange. 
Uh, Suzanne offered me a fistful of cupcake. And I, I, I didn't sign. <laughs> so I, I, I stood there, still kind of like in awe, and I'm like, what? And I'm thinking, what would Freddie do? And I look out the window, and there's a bus full of kids in costumes pulling out away, and it, it's done. And so I have no choice, but I have to leave school. But I don't take the costume off, because I'm like, maybe I'm walking home through the suburbs, through this little patch of woods, down the street, maybe I run into a lady walking her dog. <laughs> and she screams, her hair turns white, her dog's hair turns white, maybe, maybe that's where it'll happen. Or maybe a guy will come out on his porch and turn unexpectedly and suddenly Freddy Krueger will be there. He'll say something like, special delivery. <laughs> I had the mail. <laughs> but what happened instead is as I'm walking, it's a really unseasonably warm October day. And so as I'm walking, things are starting to melt. The ball cap is really hot. So makeup char is running into my eyes, into my mouth. Chunks of face are starting to flap off. I can barely see, so I'm like walking like this through the neighborhood. Until I finally get to my, my house. And that's when I see my mom's car's home. And I'm like, all right. Flash <laughs> <laughs> oh, shot. And so I sneak in, I sneak up the stairs, and she's in the living room sitting on the couch watching TV, and I sneak up real quietly, pull my hat to try to reattach some of my <laughs> I'm walking up. I put my glove on her shoulder and I go, Hello, mommy dearest. <laughs> she turns to look. And finally, I get the look of outright horror. <laughs> if you get any of that shit on my rug, I'm gonna kill you. Get in the basement now! Right now! She was scared. <laughs> so I go down to the basement and I'm ripping off and, and Chunks that want to come off, like, are, are the ones that were falling off. Then there are other ones that are like, this is never coming off. My <laughs> so I've got like a pumice. I'm like trying to. I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to see a skull when I pull my face up. And I, I work at it for like, you know, 20 minutes until finally I'm back to being a bright pink nerd in a Christmas sweater. <laughs> and that's when I think to myself, what would Freddie do? Yeah. And I don't know. <laughs> but I do know in that moment what Scott Whitehair would do. And that was to go to the fridge and eat every pudding cup I could get. <laughs> Thank you.
Risk, and this is Pickwick behind me now. Now, That recording you just heard was of the wonderful Scott Whitehair. He was performing at the show that you can find at thismuchistruechicago.com. Remember, we'd like to run your stories at your live shows wherever you are in the world, and you can pitch us your stories directly, especially those having to do with the fall and winter holidays, the ones following this one, Halloween. You can find the directions for pitching us at our website at risk-show.com submissions. And another way to call our attention to a story is that you might workshop it one-on-one with me over Skype or in person or at one of our many specialized workshops at thestorystudio.org. Beowulf Jones, who produces the Risk Live show in Los Angeles, will be teaching a two-day storytelling workshop out there on November 23rd. The last one that he taught was a huge hit. David Crabb, who is quite simply one of the most talented storytellers that I know of, and everyone who has taken workshops with him loves him, raves about him. (laughs) That includes someone who wrote for the New York Times. There was a New York Times article about what a great teacher David is. He has a six-week level one storytelling workshop in New York starting November 12th. And Dawn Fraser, also on the faculty. She's done several classic risk stories. She's toured the country with the moth. She's spoken at schools and businesses all over the Northeast. Dawn has a two-day storytelling workshop in New York on November 16th. So find out about all that and so much more at thestorystudio.org. In a little bit, we're going to hear from another former Story Studio student who is now a dear friend of mine. Miss Heidi Galore. But before that, a terrific writer and actor, Mr. Brett Ween, who does a lot of work at the People's Improv Theater in New York. Here he is now with a story we call Behind That Door. When I first went off to college, I was still really sheltered and I was not a cool guy. Like, I just didn't know of cool stuff, really. And so when I got to college, I went to this pretty cool liberal arts college and I met this girl named Cassie. She was weird, but in a really cool way and in a way that made me feel comfortable. She was into cool bands like Bauhaus and The Smiths and Robin Hitchcock and stuff like that. She even lived in the Gothic dorm, by the way. You know, it seemed like it was a place that was filled with the vampires of the school. Cassie would do things like take psychedelic drugs right before going in to do an art history essay exam and she'd get an A. One thing that finally, at some point freshman year, came up about Cassie that sort of accentuated, sort of maybe half explained her gothy persona was 
terrible. It was a tragic thing in her life that she let us know about in a very tiny way, almost offhandedly, which is that she had a sister who had died. And for the rest of college, whenever we would bring it up, she wouldn't really want to talk about it. I don't think I ever found out exactly how her sister died or her name or anything really about her. It ended up being this weird pocket of absence around her, this mystery that we never got to the bottom of. My best friend, Derek, I mean, she and I and Derek and a few other people were like this closely bonded group of freshman year friends. And for a while, Derek even dated her. One thing that was weird about Cassie, not in a cool way, but just in a sort of a huh way that came out when Derek was dating her, was that she believed that her dead sister lived in her closet wherever she happened to be. And Cassie was a very, like, reasonable, not kooky person. But she would say with a very straight face, Oh, well, she lives in my closet. And we would say, Oh, what, <laughs> what, what, what do you mean, Cassie? It just came out that she truly believed this was not a bit. This went on for, like, two years totally deadpan and you know we lost touch a few years in maybe junior year I think toward the end of junior year she had been dating Rick sort of unlikely guy for her this broad-shouldered guy from another school this blonde guy who seemed like more of a frat boy kind of guy and they went off for Christmas vacation and he went with her to her parents' house in Virginia. And I remember he came back and it came up that over Christmas vacation, like, oh yeah, her parents didn't know I was home staying with her. That was a little weird. So I just slept in the closet. Oh, and yeah, her sister kicked me in the middle of the night. And this was almost like an infection because he too did not seem like a nutty guy. It still did not seem like a bit at all totally straight-faced we'd say what do you mean and he was like no no she it's true like i was asleep and i kind of woke up and i felt like i definitely got kicked and i had this feeling and i i just knew and we couldn't get him to be i mean he wasn't a particularly funny guy but he even for him he was just like totally stony-faced about it like oh my they both genuinely do believe this this is creepy and this was just sort of like having a dull headache throughout my college career like it was one thing that didn't quite make sense toward the end of my college career when I really wasn't sort of hanging out with any of them at that point it turned out that she'd gotten a little more into drugs I think she may have had a little bit of a meltdown probably having to do with that so when she ended up in the hospital and her parents came up my good friend Derek not to be confused with Rick he kind of inserted himself into the situation because he still cared about Cassie. And when serious things came up, Derek would get sort of a pompous kind of tone. He was telling me how he was standing in the hallway in the hospital talking to her parents. They'd just gotten there. And he was sort of saying to them, as, as I can imagine, kind of like this, like, well, yes, I mean, I know Cassie has had issues in the past. I know she believes that your other daughter... I don't know if you know this, that, that she believes 
that she lives in her closet. And he went on and I'm sure gave them his take on her psychology and what was probably going on with her. And her parents just listened to him go on and on for a few minutes, not saying anything. And finally he stopped talking. And then they said, Cassie never had a sister. I've been a police officer for four years by this point. It was towards the end of my shift during the day, and I got a call for what we call check on the welfare. Dispatch basically just tells you the basics. All they said was check on the welfare of this guy, meet with the apartment manager. So as I'm driving there, I get a radio call from my old field training officer. She says, hey, I got a new rookie with me. Uh, Do you mind if we take lead on this? And I was like, sure like that's totally fine I would actually really love that and in my head I'm going thank god because if we find a body which is sometimes happens on these things she has to do the 10 page paperwork so that's what taking the lead means typically so happy to do it and we're all on our way what's kind of unique about this is that all three of us were women and we're all going to the same call so all three of us arrive around the same time We meet with the apartment manager, and he tells us that he got a call from one of the tenants in the building, and they had complained about a strange leak coming from the ceiling of their bathroom, leaking down into their bathroom, and that it smelled really bad, and that it was a really dark brown, almost black color, which is pretty odd. So when they went to investigate it, they went upstairs, the managers did, and they knocked on the door, no answer. They called the guy, it's a single male living there, and no answer. So as they key into the place, they push the door open and the chain is locked on the inside. So he's definitely there, he's just not answering. They needed us to help force entry. They're also concerned about the guy because a passing neighbor said, oh hey, by the way, I haven't seen him in three weeks. <laughs> so everyone's thinking the same thing. Okay, this guy's dead in there and he's probably decomposing in the bathroom. I mean, this is just a thought that's already in there, in our heads. So we go upstairs. The super's up there, and he's got, um, like, those large wire cutters. He goes to cut the chain. We're like, okay, before you do that, we're going to send the rookie in first. That's her job. She gets to be the one who gets shot first if he's shooting at us. So <laughs> we line up like we were about ready to go into this place. He cuts the chain. We push it open. The rookie goes in. We all have our guns drawn. We spread out immediately. We're looking, we're looking. We're calling out, you know, police, police, is anyone here? Hello, is anyone here? Arlington Police? You know, nothing. No no sounds from humans, no noises from animals, nothing. And when we first get into the room, it's one big area. It's the kitchen, the dining room, and the living room all kind of together open. Immediately I notice that it's pristinely clean. None of it looks used, so it's just odd. The next thing I noticed was that it was so unbelievably cold in there. As I'm walking past the thermostat on the wall, I see that it's at the lowest possible setting, and it feels like it's been there for a while. 
and the first thing I'm thinking is someone's killed this guy, and they're probably trying to hide the amount of times this guy's been dead or something. And I'm also thinking, where is this guy? He's not calling out to us. It's all locked from the inside. So if this guy's dead, and if somebody killed him, then they're all still here, if there's more than one person. So I'm thinking of all the possibilities. I'm looking at the rookie, hoping she's thinking the same things too. So we all kind of funnel into this hallway with our guns down. Again, the rookie's gonna go first. Um, We try the door and it's locked, but it's one of those push locks from the inside. So we take a a pin. Somebody had a bobby pin, we're all girls. And um, we push the lock out. The rookie's ready to go in first. We all kind of stand toward the door and cover her as best we can from there. And I see her go in and then start kind of dancing once she gets in there. She looked like a puppet on a string. Like just all of a sudden she's like moving every body part. At the same time, she's yelling out, oh my fucking God, you guys, there's no one in here. This is disgusting. You need to see this. I'm shocked because there's no one in there for one thing. And the next I'm like, what could it be? So... I'm sort of against the threshold of the door with my shoulder and I'm peeking my head around and as I peek around and my nose crosses the door threshold, the smell just smacks me right in the face. It smells like every possible bodily fluid and function that you could possibly have all at once mixed in a blender and then dispersed outward. (laughs) And that's exactly what it looks like in the bathroom as well. It's more vomit than feces, as far as I could tell. There was definitely a lot of feces in there, but it was probably diarrhea, so it was pretty much close to vomit looking. The floor had like an inch or two, whatever it could take, of this muck, and that's what was leaking down. So the the rookie, when she went in, she stepped right into it, and then that's why she was dancing around. (laughs) She was like, oh, so her boots got all nasty. It looks like the toilets overflowed at least a hundred times, and the bathtub is filled with water and this mess. I can't tell if any of it was blood ever, but there's no body in there. Like, we can see through the bunk in the bathtub to the bottom, and we don't see a person. It's all over the walls, up and down the walls. It's like he spun around puking, but we're confused because there's nobody in there, and it was locked from the inside, but okay, he probably locked it and pulled it shut. So now we know there's no one in there. So we're expecting that there's someone in the bedroom or down the hall at least. So we go down the hallway and to our right is a utility closet. And in there is a washer and dryer and they open up the washer and we immediately get hit in the face with that smell again from the bathroom. And in there we can see clothes kind of mid cycle in water, just sitting in there though, stagnant. And we kind of poke at it and it's, you know, there's nobody in there. So we look in the dryer, there's nobody in there. And then the last door is the bedroom door. So we all rush in immediately when the doors open. It's again, cold in there. That's not as noticeable as everything else in this room. The first thing that I see is not a a person. I don't see anybody immediately, but I see a mattress on the floor. And then to the left of that is a giant mound of clothes piled, piled high, like, like five mattresses high and about the size of a large mattress itself. But we don't see another door. We don't see anything else that this person could be hiding in if there's anyone in here. As we're looking around, we see the entire wall. I mean, it's not supposed to be wallpapered, but it is wallpapered. And as I'm looking closer, it's pages of the Bible that have been ripped out one by one. 
pasted onto the wall, all the way to the ceiling, covering every possible last bare spot of a wall, written on top of these pages of the Bible in red crayon or lipstick, is um, just these phrases in their own quotations, and they, they're all sort of like basically describing self-torture, self-immolation, all kinds of things regarding pain inflicted on oneself by oneself. It looked like things that were probably going on in this person's head or that he was reading, that he was really identifying with. And if this person, at this point, I'm thinking he's probably trying to kill himself or he's dead somewhere. So we all kind of look around. We don't see anyone immediately. Again, we're still calling out. There's no one. No answer, no noises, nothing. And so we all kind of look at each other and we look at the pile of clothes and we think, you know, he's definitely in there. Without even, like, looking at each other or speaking, we both pull out on our belt. We have this little collapsible baton. I start on one side and she starts on the other, and we're trying to poke as deep as we can. Um, the rookie comes in and she does the same thing. Nothing. There's no person in there. Not even, like, parts of a person. There's just nothing in there. So then we look at each other like, well, what did we miss? What the fuck happened to this guy? And where is he? And I said to them, I'm like, do you think he exploded in the bathroom? Like, is that what all that stuff in there is? And that we just kind of laugh to each other. But we've been through this whole house. We don't see a person. So we kind of split up and we go back to the rooms that we had already searched. So they're back in the kitchen talking to each other. And I go back in the bedroom. I kind of just want to look around a little bit more. Uh, I don't know what else to do. For some reason, I thought to look behind the bedroom door. When it opened, it opened flush against the wall, though, so unless he's paper thin, there's no way he could be hiding behind the door. But I just grab the door and I look behind it, and immediately I see a small closet door. I was like, oh, fuck. The first thing I think is, we're such idiots. If there was somebody in there, they could have easily killed us all. <laughs> and I put my hand on the doorknob, I have my gun in my hand, and I think to myself, I should probably wait for them, but I just don't. I pull it open fast, Immediately, I see a human sitting there. He's crouching or kneeling, and his face is pointed downward. He's very pale. He looks thin. He looks sick or dead. I can't tell. Uh, I can't hear him breathing, and he's not making any noises. And so I say to him, Hey, this is the police. We're here to help you. Do you need some help? Are you okay? And nothing. So I'm looking to see if maybe he'd hanged himself somehow. But there's so many clothes overloaded in this closet, I can't really tell. And he's kneeling in a way with his neck hidden, so I can't even see that. So I put my gun away, and I grab my flashlight. Saw maybe five inches from his face, and kind of looking around the side of his face. And they had come in the room at this point, so they're just standing there, looking. No one's talking. So I get closer, I click my flashlight on, shine it at his face. He lifts his head up and looks right at me and he says, Help me. The next thing I know, I'm six feet away from him, screaming like a girl, and it's not something I ever do. And I can hear them screaming too. Oh my fucking God, Jesus Christ, what the hell? Immediately I'm like, oh, uh, sir, are you okay? Like I came back to reality 
and realize we need to help this person instead of screaming at him. And I'm apologizing for yelling at him, for screaming at his face. And he's unaware of any of this. He just needs help. So we immediately get an ambulance rolling. We, we call one on the radio. We lay him down and we go and get him like some water. And we're waiting for the ambulance to get there. He tells us that he'd been like this for three weeks. That he had lost his job, was already depressed, had tried to kill himself with everything that he had in his house three weeks ago, which consisted of a lot of over-the-counter pain medication, that kind of thing, and maybe a fifth of vodka or something, which apparently wasn't enough. It made him really sick, so he kept getting sick. Then he tried again by taking every single other pill that he had in his house, which consisted of vitamins, laxatives, and then drinking every liquid that he could possibly drink, which included cleaners that were under the sink, and just kept getting sick and sick, which is why the bathroom was the way it was. He was embarrassed by it and really upset that he couldn't die, so he just relegated himself to his bedroom, and that's where he spent the last two weeks, hallucinating probably and not eating any food. So he was actually really close to dying at that point if we hadn't found him. So I'm glad we found him and I'm glad we were able to help him. At this point, I mean, it was my fourth year and I thought I knew how to do everything (laughs) properly. From this, I definitely learned that like, I still had more to learn (laughs) from each incident.
Well, that about wraps it up this week, folks. This is Local Natives behind me now. And that was Heidi Galore, who we just heard. You can find her on Twitter at SnarkyComment. Well, I'll tell you what, folks. There's nothing quite like seeing Risk live. And in November 2013, there are a lot of opportunities. On the 9th of November, we return to Providence, Rhode Island. That's our Brown and RISD show. On the 15th, we return to Philadelphia at the First Person Arts Festival. And on the 21st, we are in New York and Los Angeles. To find out where Risk is happening next, always go to risk-show.com slash tour. And listen, Risk is listener-supported. We very dearly rely on the help of the people who love what we do because it takes a lot of people to put this particular podcast together, the live shows, the story prep, the podcast editing, touring, the marketing, the workshops. We are still a very fledgling company here working on a budget of almost nothing. Most of the people who are bringing this show to you are working for nothing or for peanuts. Very much unlike other storytelling shows you might be familiar with on, you know, the big national radio. And we're a proud member of the Maximum Fun Network of Podcasts. So, to help keep Risk running, please go to MaximumFun.org donate and become a member or make a one-time donation today. And be sure to earmark it for Risk. Thank you so much. And folks... Today's the day. Take a risk.